Welcome to BBB National Program's Accountability Studio podcast. This episode focuses on understanding the cross-border privacy rules system, or CBPR, a voluntary framework with a global impact. We are recording this episode on July 1st, 2021. It's hard to believe that it's July, but this is probably an evergreen episode because, as we like to do on this podcast, we'll be discussing the structure and procedures that make CBPR an effective accountability mechanism for the privacy arena. We'll, of course, also get down to brass tacks about the reasons that business leaders should know and care about a co-regulatory privacy framework like CBPR. I'm Coben Zweifel Keegan, Deputy Director of Privacy Initiatives here at BBB National Programs, and I'll be serving as your host today. With me are two privacy veterans who are intimately familiar with the CBPR system. Sam Schofield, who serves as an international trade specialist in the Office of Digital Services, the Office of Digital Services Industries, ODSI, at the International Trade Administration, U.S. Department of Commerce. Hi, Sam. Hey, everybody. How are you? Pretty good. Nice to have you on. And um, Josh Harris is also with me. He's the Director of Global Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs. Hey, Josh. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'll lay the groundwork quickly. Why are we talking about CBPR in this episode? Uh, The Accountability Studio is a platform to highlight independent accountability in action. We examine the real-world mechanisms that provide transparency, independent review, and dispute resolution to solve on-the-ground challenges and foster trust in the marketplace. Today, we focus on data privacy. CBPRs provide a great example of how businesses can serve as leaders of transparency and accountability in privacy. They also showcase one model of co-regulation, which I just mentioned earlier, a voluntary system for businesses to embrace standards that go beyond national requirements in coordination with regulators. Finally, there's a lot of interesting mechanisms at play here, from privacy certifications, a mechanism for businesses to demonstrate their adoption of recognized best practices, to a consumer-to-business dispute resolution procedure. So I think it makes for some interesting discussion. Um, We'll talk about how all of this works in practice and why it matters for business. We're also going to be talking a lot about APEC in this episode. So let me break down what that is and what some of those need-to-know acronyms are for the episode so that we're not lost in uh, alphabet soup today. APEC is the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, a regional economic forum with 21 member economies around the Pacific Rim. CBPR which I already mentioned, is the Cross-Border Privacy Rules System, a voluntary framework that was created by those APEC economies. And PRP stands for Privacy Recognition for Processors. This will probably come up later. It's a compatible framework that was specifically designed for vendors that work with CBPR certified companies. For those listeners who aren't privacy professionals, uh, it might be worthwhile for me to mention that word processor in the word in the acronym PRP and kind of go over the distinction between a processor and a controller. A controller of personal data is an organization with the power to decide how and why the data is being collected and processed. Whereas the processor is the organization, often a vendor, that carries out the controller's instructions uh, and can't use the personal data for its own purpose. Okay, so that's the background. Let's set the scene a bit about this uh, APEC framework. Where did the APEC 
CBPR idea come from? I'll uh, ask you, Sam, first, sort of, I, I think it'd be interesting to know why Why did APEC ever talk about privacy? Why, why is privacy a part of something between all of these economies around the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, thanks, Coben. So first and foremost, I would just say that the primary reason for trying to have some sort of privacy model for APEC, I think, you know, it can be attributed to the name APEC, which is an economic cooperation group. So it's an intergovernmental forum of 21 economies that are trying to establish mechanisms that allow for more trade and economic cooperation between those countries. And as the economy has modernized and become increasingly digital, um, there's a lot more data that is produced cross-border operations and and that companies need to move across borders either as part of their daily operations between headquarters and subsidiaries or or as part of cross-border transactions that they're processing on behalf of their customers. And so, um, you know, there was increasingly a need to, first of all, establish some common principles within APEC for privacy in terms of commitments that all those countries would have, values and, and, and principle standards that they would all abide by, recognizing that there were different uh, regulatory regimes between the United States and, say, Japan and Korea and China. So the, the origins of, the, of you know, needing a privacy model were attributed to that, that they, you know, we, if, they, if there was a governmental forum focused on economic cooperation, you need some way to be able to, uh, you know, make cross-border commerce interoperable. Um, and so the first step was that APEC established uh, a series of principles, the APEC privacy uh, standards, um, and those date back uh, as far as 2005. Um, and those are a set of about uh, nine to 12 uh, different privacy principles that are actually based on other internationally recognized privacy principles uh, in the OECD that date back to 1980 and then were revised in 2013. But the point is that the OECD privacy principles um, influence a lot of the, the APEC privacy principles that uh, 21 economies agreed on. Um, and then later on, there was increasingly a need to uh, have some kind of mechanism to implement those principles. Um, and so that's where the APEC CBPR system was proposed. That, that's what we call it, the APEC cross-border privacy rules system. We call it the APEC CBPR system. And um, so that those those uh, those are basically a series of 50 program requirements um, that nine economies within APEC currently recognize um, as a set of baseline standards that uh, all nine of them recognize while still understanding that they have different uh, data privacy regulations, there might be, you know, a few things here or there that defer between economies. Um, but then this was converted into a, a certification that companies can can obtain to basically that basically say that they are they are you know responsible stewards of personal data, um, and that they can they can transfer data. Uh, between these nine economies that participate in the APEC CBPR system, um, as long as they're abiding by those 50 program requirements um, and also any unique, um, you know, regulatory requirements in individual markets. Um, So, you know, I I don't know if there's anything terribly unique about APEC. I mean, countries all over the world are looking to modernize their data protection and data privacy regimes. Um, But APEC, uh, you know, there there are some heavily diversified economies within that group. There are many economies that are increasingly services based and and have, um, you know, many players in the digital economy. And so, you know, it's difficult to have an economic cooperation group if you don't have some kind of interoperable standard 
um, that facilitates the flow of data across borders. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I know, Josh, you were in the, you were sort of in the room where it happened when all of this was being, when APEC uh, was creating the CBPR system. Um, what was the, how did all of that come together? What was, there, what were they trying to solve for? Um, what, what brought them to the table? Well, <clears throat> I think further to Sam's point, um, one of the most important things that if you're ever going to get any project launched in APEC, you have, you have to demonstrate that it's going to have a tangible economic impact across all 21 different economies. Um, but as Sam has mentioned, there's 21 different economic stories and the way in which a cross-border privacy rules system might impact those economies are really going to vary from country to country. So the first thing that happened is everybody came around the table and said, well, these are our regional economic issues. And when you looked at the developing countries that are in APEC, their economic issues at the time as it related to digital were primarily about consumer confidence building. They could, at the beginning of this process, there were economies that were showing us literally the number of websites that collected credit card information, growth year over year. We had 400 last year, we're up to 750 this year. And the primary motivation in those economies was how are we going to make sure that our citizens are confident to use these new digital platforms? The most developed economies had the opposite problem. They were long since past the you know early days of, is it safe to put my credit card on a website type issue. Now they were dealing with the very real impact of a multitude of privacy regulations, um, overlapping obligations, how to manage all of this stuff. So you had at once a desire for um, the kind of direct consumer confidence type of, uh, of reason. Then you also had this need to be able to simplify and streamline for the multinationals. Also, it has to be done uh, consensus-based. If you take those four elements, you will, I think, see very clearly why and how the CBPR system looks as it does. It has to be, it's an economic-based, consensus-based system to facilitate both consumer confidence and regulatory interoperability. That's basically the story behind why they did it. And when you look at those four precepts, you can see how all of that is papered throughout and papering becomes a very important part of the development of anything in a multinational form. Why are you doing this? Against which metrics are you going to measure it? Um, so that's how basically the, the, the genesis of the whole thing. And what's proceeded since then has been, I guess at this point now, 15 years worth of um, trial and error, refining the system, taking it from the operational principal level, I should say, from the principal level, down to the operational level, which Coben, now you and I, this is the world we live in, as recently endorsed accountability agents. So we're in the process of, you know, actually making the stamp mechanism happen uh, and making sure that it's happening correctly. So it's been really interesting to, to see the thing from those very beginning type of Pathfinder projects, which is what they call uh, an APEC project in its infancy, all the way through to now from this perspective, is it working? And how is it working? And, you know, not to be biased, but from my perspective, it is working <laughs> and well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to, I've certainly found it fascinating to 
be part of the accountability agent side of that, but I know it that all exists. We exist as an accountability agent as part of a much broader governance structure that was built into this system. Um, and I think that's on this podcast, we're so interested in the different layers of accountability that you can build into um, any set of standards. And so maybe Sam, you could talk a little bit more about what is the overall structure that an independent accountability agent is is sitting within in this? How does kind of, especially because this is a multinational system, how does the structure work? Sure. Um, so as you guys said, um, this is a multi-layered uh, governance structure that we have for the APEC CBPR system. And we, you know, here at, at International Trade Administration, we kind of view the, the CBPR system as having um, four layers um, of, of uh, you know, um, of structure and, and, and accountability. And so the highest level is obviously the economies themselves that participate um, in the APEC CBPR system. And in order to join the APEC CBPR system, the economy first has to demonstrate that it has an independent uh, data privacy regulator within its government. Um, so for the United States, that entity is the Federal Trade Commission or FTC. Um, that is the, the, the primary uh, regulator for, uh, you know, consumer protection issues and, and, and cross-border uh, commerce. So if, it, if an economy is looking to join the Apex VPR system, they have to first put forward that, uh, that government agency. Um, and then there is something called the cross-border privacy enforcement arrangement within the APEC CBPR system. And that's that's the group of regulators across the, the economies that participate that have agreed to cooperate um, on, on, on regulating and uh, cross-border data transfers and, and, and remedying any privacy violations that might occur uh, within this system. Um, and then that privacy regulator has to be uh, reviewed by what we call the Joint Oversight Panel, which is a rotating group of three economies um, that review that application and they determine whether or not uh, that, that regulator, that government agency meets the requirements of the CBPR system. Um, and then the economies have to agree that they will accept that uh, entity and the economy into, into the uh, APEC CBPR system. And then again, the joint oversight panel, which is that, that rotating group of economies that's currently made up by the United States, by Singapore and Japan. Um, and so those three economies on the JOP, as we call it, they are responsible for, again, accepting, you know, reviewing the, the application of that privacy regulator, but then also um, reviewing applications for accountability agents, which BPP National Programs is, is one of those for the United States. And the accountability agents are that lower um, level account of accountability right above the companies that participate. There's a lot of flexibility in the accountability agents in that uh, in one case, there is a government uh, agency that acts as the accountability agent, but they, they have to be independent uh, and separate from the regulator um, and, and able to, to you know, again, operate uh, on its own and, and, and without bias. Um, and so those accountability agents have to be approved by the, the joint oversight panel. Um, and then once uh, all economies agree that they have they've met the requirements, they are certified as an accountability agent. And then the last layer is the companies themselves and companies that want to participate in the uh, CBPR system have to apply to participate in the system with one of the accountability agents for their economy. And in, in the United States, there are five currently um, that participate as accountability agents. Um, and those companies, you know, they, they have to basically demonstrate that they have their own 
privacy standards and that they, they conduct their own oversight of their privacy protections across, you know, across the world between their, their headquarters and their subsidiaries. Um, and if they can demonstrate that they have, uh, you know, mechanisms in place to comply with all of the program requirements in the CBPR system, then they are certified uh, by accountability agents. So it's that multi-layered system that really allows uh, APEC to, to operate the way it does. Cool. So what is the, I guess, maybe this is a question more for Josh, I guess, how do the accountability agents fit into the, I mean, we, we heard how they fit into the structure, but how, what is the role vis-a-vis the accountability agents and the companies? What, how does that work on the ground uh, when companies apply, want to be certified? So when they're develop when they were developing the the system itself, they established not just the requirements around who can be an accountability agent, but also uh, the way in which an accountability agent is going to conduct a certification for a company. And so when you go through that application process as an accountability agent, you have to either make use of the standards that were developed by the APEC member economies, and for CBPRs, that's fifty program requirements. Um, or if you want to use your own certification standards, you have to map your standards against the CBPR requirements. That then gets put up for a consensus determination of sufficiency. So you have some flexibility in terms of using your own in-house processes, but it's going to take a little bit longer because you're going to have to satisfy the governments and the regulators across those 21 economies that your in-house process at least meets the baseline. That said, whether you're using an in-house standard or you're using the 50 program requirements, um, your interaction with the company begins with the provision of those requirements, which manifest as questions. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? Across the nine principles. So we have questions around notice. We have questions around choice, collection, limitation, use, all the way up through accountability. Those questions are then answered and they are appended with evidence that shows that the policies uh, that are in place at the time of the certification do meet those requirements. It's up to the accountability agent at that point to look at those policies, verify that they are in effect, that's coupled with an attestation from the company, but then to make sure that the policies as they are designed will operate in a way in which they will enforce the APEC program requirements. The most basic level of that type of an analysis is There are, let's say, 10 different elements that need to be found in your notice. The accountability agent has to quite literally read the notice, identify those 10 different elements, verify that they are there, and get an attestation that the company will not change those elements during the life cycle of its certification. That's probably the easiest, most straightforward type of analysis. When you think about onward transfers, which is another dimension of the CBPR certification, Um, the ways in which that company is going to explain to the accountability agent that they are going to obligate any third parties that receive that data um, to their obligations at the time of collection. Uh, Generally, that's going to look like a contract, a a master services agreement of of some type. The accountability agent has to look at that, make sure that there are, in fact, binding provisions within that agreement. And then again, coupled with an attestation that any transfer within scope of the certification will use that instrument or a materially similar instrument. Um, I began with notice and ended with onward transfers, uh, but there are a bunch of assessments that are done in between that. Um, There are elements that are a matter of policy review, for example, looking at the contractual language. There are also elements that involve um, 
more specific and physical interventions. So for example, when you're testing the access and correction mechanisms, uh, one of the things that a company may attest to is that they will provide uh, access or confirmation as to whether or not they hold information uh, about a consumer within X number of days. So the accountability agent is expected to make sure that those functions are actually operational as well. And so whether that's a decoy account um, or something to that effect, that's usually how that gets tested and documented. The whole of this interaction with these companies is usually somewhere around six weeks. This is a company that has a mature or relatively mature privacy practice and has all of the evidence, if not ready to demonstrate, um, accessible to them. In other words, there are no massive remediations or new elements that need to be built. Um, generally, the accountability agents begin, they take that information in either directly through some sort of a, a, a portal or something like that, and that begins the process. Cool. So that's sort of the front end, I guess, of, of joining. And on the other end of it is actual enforcement, right? Holding holding companies to account to this to the standards that they've uh, voluntarily embraced through a system like this. What does that look like? I guess first at the accountability agent mechanism, and then at the government uh, level or in the intergovernment level. How does all that part work? Okay, well, I can I can speak to the the first part of it, and then I'll hand off to Sam for, you know, where the handoff would be in the in the second layer of enforcement. Um, so basically, you know, the first thing you have is an obligation for the consumers to try to address the issue with the company. We're looking to make sure that at the time of certification, the company has uh, a working um, privacy complaint portal or something to that effect, where they can actually answer um, issues that a consumer may have. If that has not worked um, or they don't receive a response, then they will come to the accountability agent. We, most accountability agents have dispute resolution instructions embedded in their seal. Um, so that, for example, when you click on a privacy seal that says, hey, I'm CBPR certified, there will also be some sort of a portal to a dispute resolution um, mechanism. There, they will identify what the uh, exact issue is. There is going to be a process um, involved with remediation as to that. That's all guided by the way in which a company agrees to the terms of their participation with their accountability agent. One of the most important things that the governments expect of an accountability agent, in fact, they require of an accountability agent, is to show them the way in which they're going to enforce their program requirements. And they list a whole bunch of different ways in which you might be able to do that. But practically speaking, the easiest and most straightforward way of enforcing the program requirements is that a company's failure to implement them as directed is grounds for removal from the system. And then once we've removed from the system, we, of course, update the Department of Commerce to say this this company is no longer certified. Uh, If there are repeated violations, repeated and willful violations that cannot be corrected, the accountability agents, all of them, reserve the right to uh, notify relevant enforcement authorities, including the Department of Commerce. Now, fortunately, this has not uh, ever come up in the context of any APEC participating company or CBPR participating company, but there is that possibility there. Functionally, what that would look like then, I suppose, would be the direct handoff to the Department of Commerce and the FTC to say, hey, this organization has repeatedly failed to meet its obligations. We cannot get them to correct it while we have removed their seal. 
we know that they are not only in violation of the CBPR system, but potentially of applicable law. At that point, then, Sam, uh, you you tell us what would what would happen in that situation. Sure. Well, thanks, Josh. I mean, first of all, I don't work for the FTC, so I mean, I'm not going to go into super detail about how they investigate and 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 uh, enact enforcement actions. However, as you said, I mean, in in the event that there are repeated and willful violations of the Apex uh, the CBPR program requirements. Um, then a government enforcement agency w- would likely step in and, and potentially take action. Um, you know, there could, there could be financial penalties, uh, all, all kinds of things. Um, and it's important to note that, you know, the CBPR system is a government-backed uh, set of program requirements by the, the nine different governments that participate. Um, you know, we like to communicate to private sector uh, stakeholders as well as uh, other governments that are considering joining the CBPR system or recognizing the certification that the benefits of this multilateral data privacy certification are, are, are a few things. You know, one, it establishes consistent requirements across jurisdictions. Uh, it enables enforcement cooperation because of that multilayered uh, governance approach that I talked about. Um, it ensures that different approaches to data protection don't create barriers to cross-border data flows. However, once you're in the system and you are able to relatively freely uh, transfer data across borders with common protections, um, if you are not abiding by those program requirements, you, you are subject to potential penalties. And so, you know, the FTC, if it, if it gets to that stage where the, the accountability agent was not able to uh, remedy, you know, smaller violations on its own, and, 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 the, and these uh, violations are, are continuing, the FTC can take, you know, various actions. It can, it can launch an investigation. Um, it, can, it can ultimately determine that there should be, uh, you know, sanctions against that company if, that, if it's occurring in the United States. But, but also, you know, they can, you know, these enforcement authorities can cooperate with one another and notify each other of, you know, potential violations that are occurring in one or, or multiple jurisdictions. So, you know, it's, it's this multi-layered system that allows data to flow relatively freely, but you have a lot of obligations as a company uh, to both comply with the, the 50 different program requirements in the system, as well as any unique uh, requirements under a single jurisdiction like Japan or, or Australia. You know, there might be a um, mandatory requ- requirement to report uh, cyber breaches of, of, of personal data that not all economies have that, but it just, you have a lot of obligations that you need to abide by while you're, while you're in the system. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's not, it's not so much a, um, I'm sitting here thinking about like, what, why would a company then want to adopt a, a voluntary, a standard like that? Uh, and it, I think more and more, you're probably seeing that um, these standards are baseline all over the world anyway, right? It's not like this is going above the compliance requirements that a company's already subject to. Um, so instead, they're, uh, this provides that additional mechanism for companies to show that they are meeting those. Yeah, Josh, do you want to talk about that a bit more? Yeah, one of, one of the things that I, I, I hear quite frequently is is that there is kind of a misconception that somehow or another you would be putting yourself in sort of under a heightened liability structure if you're in the CBPRs. Uh, but what's really important to remember is that the basis for enforcement against you is participation in the CBPRs is Section 5. 
And section five is all based on deception. Are you doing what you said you would do or unfairness? Are you doing something um, so egregious as a commercial practice that it is functionally unfair to the consumer? And that's section five of the FTC Act, right? Uh, Section five of the FTC Act. Um, A CBPR certification is based on those exact same things. So your failure to live up to the program requirements as stipulated in the CBPRs, which are functionally found in your notice, has you just as liable vis-a-vis Section 5 and the FTC as participation in that does. So there's really no difference for you in that. The key benefit that I think distinguishes you know, participation from non-participation, you could say that you're doing every single thing in the CBPR system. Of course, you can't say that you're CBPR certified, but you can say you're doing every single thing. That will not matter in the governments that have recognized CBPRs. So a company that does the exact same processes and procedures and papers it the same way, um, but is not in fact formally certified, will not get the legal recognition that they do, say, for example, in Japan or Singapore. So there's definitely a reason that you would want to take this on and to actually formally get the certification. Uh, The risks to you are the exact same risks as you would have engaging in digital commerce with any kind of consumer-facing notice, regardless. So I just wanted to make, make sure that that was that was clear because that one that one does get lost a lot especially when we start talking about the layers of enforcement which i think are very important but it can sound scary right <laughs> well it's the accountability podcast so we want to make sure we understand how the, how all of that works um but i i mean i are there other incentives for businesses to join what um what is the reason that, that a company decides to to join cbpr i i know um, one reason is uh, that it's thought of sort of as a transfer mechanism, kind of like how Privacy Shield works uh, between the EU and the U.S., but I believe it's a little more complicated than that. Well, there's an evergreen transfer mechanism. I mean, what I, what I like the most about this, and, and, you know, Sam, not to put you on the spot, but I mean, we'd be very interested to know um, where you think this is going. Uh, Because the CBPR system starts with the benefits as defined right now. We have two jurisdictions that have some formal legal recognition around them, Japan and Singapore. Uh, But every country that's a participant in this can bring to the table new or developing ways in which to recognize the certification. If new countries join the system, they can bring to the table new ways in which to recognize the system. Uh, So the thing is, is you get the certification It's done annually for you, but those new benefits will accrue to you as a company um, over time as Sam and team are successfully, let's hope, negotiate new participation. But, you know, that said, you know, Sam, where where do you see this going, if if you don't mind me asking? Well, yeah, thanks, Josh. I mean, first of all, I want to say that I, I think you've already stated some of the primary benefits of getting this certification. So effectively... It is a credential that companies have that, that, that in a level of assurance that they provide um, to governments that they take privacy protection seriously and that they are uh, instituting these baseline um, set of standards around data and how they process it and ensuring that there are adequate protections given to all of their data processing, whether uh, that, that is data you know at rest or data traveling across borders. And so, like Josh said, even if you are a company that uh, already on paper has 
all of these privacy protections that align with with the FTC Act in the United States, uh, you, you know, that, that doesn't automatically give you the benefit of the doubt that you're processing data with good intentions. And so I, I think when you add this certification that's giving you this credential, and it's also um, the CBPR system and the program requirements that underpin it, those can serve as a basis for a global privacy program uh, for a company um, as it currently exists or as it expands. You can, you can continually map those requirements uh, to your global operations as you evolve as a company. Um, and you know, it, it facilitates compliance abroad while ensuring that vital data can continue to be transferred across borders. And then lastly, you know, there's this where the accountability agents come in is that companies are demonstrating with the certification that they have received third-party verification um, within an APEC economy uh, recognized accountability agent um, that their company is complying with internationally recognized privacy standards. And so where is it going? Uh, well, you know, basically there are nine economies participating currently um, and the Department of Commerce, International Trade Administration, we are working extensively uh, to try and expand participation in this system, both within APEC um, and also uh, increase recognition of the certification by uh, other economies that are actually not in APEC. Um, and as the system grows, as it scales, the benefits are going to increase as well for companies because, you know, if three new economies join the CBPR system tomorrow or three new economies outside of APEC recognize the certification as a valid mechanism to process and transfer data across borders, then, you know, those, those are go from nine to 12 different markets where your certification is valid. Um, and, and you are, you're demonstrating to now 12 different governments that you, um, are, are abiding by internationally recognized privacy principles. Um, so, you know, we, you know, at the department of commerce, we, we tend to say that, you know, what the world needs is, um, some kind of international framework um, that is interoperable, that is durable, and that is scalable. And we see the APEC CBPR system as a good example of something that has that potential. Um, and one of the reasons that we, we, we say that you know, the APEC CBPR system has the potential to grow significantly um, is not just because of our efforts to, to you know, uh, get, ask other economies within APEC to participate in the system. But globally, we're seeing an increase um, in new data privacy laws in, again, in countries around the world that have provisions within those laws that state um, various uh, manners in which uh, companies can transfer data. And one of those is that they often state um, that the data privacy regulator um, will recognize certain international certifications, codes of conduct, um, or other mechanisms. And that's where the United States comes in um, and is able to promote this idea of the CBPR certification being one of those internationally recognized certifications that companies could then use to comply with a new uh, data privacy law in a, in a country within APEC or outside of APEC. So there's a lot of uh, potential here for the system to to grow and, and, and the benefit, you know, getting in on this system now as a company, um, you, you're only going to see, you know, the long-term returns on that investment grow uh, as more economies recognize this or, or see the value of the certification um, for keeping protections on data uh, wherever it goes. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and it, we've talked, I guess, now about how it's 
something like this a certification mechanism can serve it's it's basically a signal um, is a signaling mechanism to you you've uh, Sam have talked a lot about to how it signals to governments certain pieces of information about the company's practices and I guess Josh you covered the on the consumer side how um, consumers are able to provide complaints or inquiries about a company's privacy practices under this system um, I think there's one other uh, audience there to this for the signals and that's um, other businesses, right? So maybe Josh, you could talk a little bit about what a mechanism like this does for the conversation that happens between businesses, especially nowadays, as everyone is always trying to check up on each other's privacy practices. Yeah, one of the things that um, is, re- I think, really innovative out of, out of the APEC work was their um, PRP system which is privacy recognition for processors. It's a certification specifically for uh, third-party suppliers that assist companies in their daily business operations, whether you need somebody to help you with your HR processes or payroll, um, whatever that might be. There's a lot of data transfers that happen that way. And one of the pain points for the companies um, is the due diligence on making sure that the data that they've collected Uh, finds its way into responsible hands and that they're not introducing any liability for themselves. Generally, what companies do when they're trying to assess the sufficiency of a supplier that they're going to hire to do a service for them is they will do a review of them. They'll give them a questionnaire. They have to answer the questions. You know, have you had any breaches? Do you have insurance? What kind of privacy program do you have? All of this kind of stuff. Every company has its own variant on that. So for the suppliers, the processors, if that's the business that you're in, you are spending a lot of time answering questionnaires, different ones, ultimately, but that's one of the pieces that you have to do. If you are a big multinational and you are dealing with a lot of vendors, you are spending a lot of time handing out questionnaires and chasing them down and trying to make sure that you're getting the answers for that and you're properly filing and papering those answers so that you can demonstrate that you've done some due diligence around this. There's even such a thing as a chasing service, which is essentially a third party that will work to chase down the answers on those questionnaires for the vendors. Um, So this is a major operational problem. One of the things that I think has a lot of promise under the PRP system, uh, but also for CBPRs, is that these certifications are evidence-based. Those that they, they require the, the demonstration of the sufficiency of your practices in actually a more in-depth of the way than just the questionnaire process would. And in a lot of ways, these program requirements, whether they're in the PRP or in the CBPR, get to the same type of questions that a company would be asking when they're trying to consider whether or not to use a particular supplier. So the more that companies can make use of these certifications and recognize them as sufficient for that onboarding process or a piece of that onboarding process, whether or not they would just take a certification um, or they're going to maintain their existing onboarding process for these suppliers, but use the certification to sort of augment that process. There's a lot of potential there to reduce the burden both on the companies that have to send out these questionnaires, but then also to the extent that a certification, particularly a PRP or a CBPR, begins to be recognized across the industry, these vendors then only need to get one certification. 
And that certification can then suffice as evidence for them across the range of companies that would be willing to take that as evidence of their privacy practices. So, um, and that one I actually see as being a, a real major potential driver for growth because when you think about the governments, <clears throat> it's a very, very, very long game to get governments and countries to join and to change laws and to recognize certifications. Uh, it's obviously the predominant part of the CBPR system, but there is this business to business dimension to it um, that really can begin to generate the necessity, the utility of these certifications outside of formal government action, which may be a bit quicker uh, in the medium term. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and I think um, it's fascinating to hear about the need for both something to, to demonstrate to your partners, to your other businesses at the same time that you're using it for reasons of kind of compliance. Um, I wonder, I know, Sam, you mentioned other economies recognizing CBPRs outside of um, the APEX system. I know the other day, uh, Bermuda announced that they were recognizing CBPRs for transferred data. Could you help explain what in the world that's about? Sure. Yeah. So um, the Bermuda example is is, is very interesting because uh, so basically what, what has occurred is that the uh, privacy regulator, um, privacy commissioner in Bermuda, um, contacted the United States, basically stating that he had determined, uh, he had reviewed the APEX CBPR system and the associated program requirements and determined that that uh, was a viable, valid certification uh, for companies to comply with uh, Bermudan law. So um, it's unique in that this is the first example where a, another economy has proactively uh, reached out to CBPR member economies and and stated that they they believe um, you, you know this this is a, a solid uh, foundational privacy certification and so it, it's the it's the first example also of an economy outside of APEC recognizing the certification so there are there, you know there are some limits on full participation until um, the the CBPR system is truly a, a global uh, independent forum, which we're hoping to happen down the road. Um, but, you know, for the time being, any U.S. companies that are operating uh, or have op some operations in Bermuda can, can use their CBPR certification, if they have it, to comply with Bermudan law. And that's, that's a, a very new case for us and something we're very uh, enthusiastic about. Cool. Yeah, it just seems to it, it shows kind of a, an actual use case for that the growth that you were talking about earlier. So it's kind of neat. Um, yeah. Well, I've, I'm really happy with um, what we've covered so far as sort of a foundation of a really understanding how this mechanism works. I think there's there's so much more um, we could talk about about kind of the, in the weeds of what. Um, what the privacy practices look like for CBPR and everything, but I think that's probably outside the scope of this episode. We'll, we'll have to, maybe we'll do a, a whole series about that. Um, I wonder if either of you have any closing remarks that we haven't covered. One thing I think would be interesting to touch on, um, because I don't know that we really explored it a whole lot, was the... Um, both of you mentioned interoperability as a word and kind of as an idea that, that is behind this framework. And I'd love just to hear more about what that means to you, why it's such an important concept 
um, in, in a global framework like this. Uh, Josh, do you want to start? Sure. This, this way we can give Sam the last word as, as, is, as is it should be since he's the government. Um, yeah, I mean, interoperability, the most basic way to, to, to think about it is that um, is there a privacy law or framework in jurisdiction X that um, meets a privacy law or framework or can work with a privacy law or framework in jurisdiction Y? Um, on a, I'll give you a, a national example of that, the Virginia privacy law that just uh, was passed last month. And then there's the Colorado privacy law, which I believe signed into law uh, yesterday, I believe it was, um, are very, very similar laws. If you are operating in Colorado, you're probably going to be operating in Virginia. That is your U.S. company. Um, you, what you do to, to, to uh, comply with the Virginia law, the policies and practices that you put into place are by and large going to be those that you're going to put into place for Colorado, not two separate sets. So when we talk about practical interoperability like that, we're talking about what is your, po what is your privacy posture? How is that used to demonstrate sufficiency in Virginia? How is that used to demonstrate sufficiency in Colorado? The APEC work is that just done internationally. And so really what we're looking to do here, I mean, from the perspective of accountability agents trying to help companies with their compliance obligations is to basically get them a global privacy posture that can be recognized as sufficient in as many jurisdictions as possible. And that's really ultimately what CBPRs are designed to be is a baseline upon which you can build uh, that system. I would be remiss if I did not plug in, however, that CBPRs could also work for sufficiency of domestic obligations, including Virginia and Colorado. So there's a lot, there's a lot you can do with this certification in terms of documenting and evidencing your, um, your compliance with, with laws, both regional, national, international. Right. And that becomes such an important, I mean, as, as we're trying to sort of build consumer trust, like we started talking about at the beginning, I think those kinds of signals are, are so important. So. Sam, did you have any closing thoughts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think Josh made a lot of great points. I, I would just add that, you know, we, when we talk about it, modern international trade uh, here at the Department of Commerce, you know, we always emphasize that, um, you know, you need mechanisms between countries that balance cross-border data flows, innovation, and also personal data privacy. Um, and, you know, this, you know, the, the, the attempts to find that balance should not be a zero sum game where, you know, one country or a set of countries has mechanisms and the other set of countries are, are closed off. Um, and so interoperability and is this, you know, um, intentional focus on creating common certifications or common frameworks um, that, you know, both uh, governments and the private sector agree on, or as Josh says, you know, baseline set of uh, standards that can be applied to demonstrate, um, you know, your, 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 your uh, privacy posture and, and compliance with different laws around the world. Um, and so I think that's really what interoperability is about, is, is trying to find those common mechanisms even while recognizing that uh, data privacy laws between two uh, on paper similar countries might be very, um, very, very different in terms of requirements. But it, it, it's a mechanism to kind of enable that pathway for, for data to, to, to flow between uh, two different legal regimes, basically, or set of legal regimes. Right. And without sort of dictating the exact uh 
model that every company, every country has to adopt. It's it's more of a, a, a way of saying, you know, everyone might have their own style, but we can at least agree to a baseline set of standards that upon which you can add. Yeah. And I would just add quickly that, I mean, I think most, uh, you know, people are aware these days that the European Union has a very robust uh, data privacy regime. And, um, you know, a lot of countries that are building out new data privacy laws often are looking at uh, that general data protection regime, uh, the GDPR, um, as a set of standards to, at least in some part, model their own data privacy laws off of to be able to maintain access to the European market. And then, you know, the issue, though, is that even when uh, economies uh, model their their own laws off of the EU uh, data protection regime, the European Union still needs to uh, certify that uh, another economy has an adequate level of data protection within their laws in order to facilitate uh, data flows between uh, the EU and and that other economy. And so the point there is just that even if... um, in the in the EU example, if an economy uh, has a law, a data protection law that is on paper ninety five percent similar to that of the EU, it's not an immediate. Um, it doesn't it doesn't uh, grant an immediate access to the EU market and transferring personal data of Europeans you know, to, to that new market. You have they still have to go go through their own um, process of, of of the EU looking into their laws and determining whether or not. Um, they are adequate. So, you know, you have to have a variety of mechanisms to be able to enable um, movement of data between uh, data privacy regimes, even when two different regimes are, again, on paper, very, very similar. Right. Yeah. And that's that's interesting to contrast those two models, um, for sure. And I think it'll be interesting to see how we continue to grow. um, And and try to to fit that balance you were talking about, about making sure to respect individual privacy rights and uh, maintain the free flow of data around the world. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I know um, your time is valuable and I appreciate uh, you stopping by the podcast to to chat about where all of this comes from. Hopefully we can uh, do more privacy episodes and and learn more about uh, structures like these in the future. But I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you all. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Colvin, and thank you, Sam. Thank you so much for listening to the Accountability Studio from BBB National Programs.